Hello and welcome to the Bright View Life podcast. I'm Ian Broom. And I'm Donna Sorensen. And I can hear the soft speak of birds in the background there in Copenhagen. I don't know if the listeners can hear it too, but it's quite pleasant. It's very nice. I can't hear them because my headphones are so tight that I can only hear my own blood pumping through my ears. Wow, what a poetic start to this episode. (laughs) Do you know, I once did a a test of my hearing for a very, very important um, thing. This is complete tangent stuff already. Do you mind? I'm sorry. No, did you do the test? going to take us off to the Air Force. (laughs) Did did you do the test? Well, you're the flying poet, of course. Did you do the, um, the test yourself or did you get a medical professional to do this test? A medical professional was testing me in a darkened room in on an Air Force base where there were jets going overhead, which I could hear, obviously very loudly, and it was extremely difficult to hear the beeps I had to hear in this hearing test for the Air Force. It was because I was trying to get the, a scholarship with them. Um, and, um, and on top of that, I could hear my blood pumping so much through my ears that I wasn't sure whether it was beeping or my own blood. Um, I passed the test, it was fine, but the reason I'm talking about it now is because every week when I record this podcast, I'm, I hear my blood pumping and I'm taken back to, to that, that room all those years ago. Are you sure you went an extra in Homeland? <laughs> well, I don't even watch Homeland, is, that, is there a lot of um, ear pumping going on? Yeah, I think so. <laughs> what should we talk about this week? Oh, so much going on. Should we should we start with a quick little um, chat about Amazon? Because we it's, it seems to be very big news at the moment, but I'm not sure that we have a massive amount to say about it. I have just been following it with interest. Have you? So this is the... Well, um, as I mentioned last week, the, uh, things have been quite busy because my wife's been ill. Um, mm-hmm. So I've not been quite as up to date with anything as I would perhaps normally have been. But uh, th- this is the story um, of uh, the battle between Amazon and Hachette. Um, which, uh, tell us more. Yeah, so I know that everybody knows that Amazon are absolutely all-powerful and controlling everything. It's just, it's amazing that it's taken so long for, you know, battles with publishers to become so public. We talked, I think we talked last week or the week before about Hachette um, making very public their disputes about discount and pricing and margins with Amazon. Um, And since that, it seems like more publishers are are, are jumping, not jumping on the bandwagon, but coming out and saying, look, we've been fighting this for a very long time. Uh, And I was reading about one uh, one publisher, actually, that that went bankrupt and was sold to Hachette. And they're talking about a large part of it was the fact that they were being so squeezed by Amazon with the discounts that they just couldn't keep going anymore. And um, it's very interesting for me. I live abroad well, far away from the rest of my family and friends. And I, in the past, have used Amazon a lot, as we all have. Um, And my excuse has always been, oh, yeah, but, you know, I I can't just get down to a bookshop in Denmark and buy, you know, a cheap book that I just want to read. And so I think I am deciding that I don't want to make that excuse anymore and I should just find a different way. Oh, excuse my P's and Q's. I think like a different way to do it. I think that we're okay with that. I don't think that quite warrants the explicit language tag. I, I'd be well excited if you beeped it out anyway, so everybody thought I said something really outrageous. I can't believe you just said that, you dirty, filthy-mouthed person. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, I've got you know a reputation for being a potty mouth to uphold. Um, my book is on Amazon, and 
I've not really paid much attention to it there. I know that it's it's cheaper than other places there. But um, but you've been on Amazon for ages, and you you uh, you enjoy being there, don't you? <laughs> um, well, it's a very complex matter, isn't it? The um, from an author's point of view, I think. Um, and and it depends what type of author you are. You are, of course, and um, um, how you feel about Amazon. If you're a self-published author of any kind, I suppose, but particularly a successful one, you rather like Amazon because you wouldn't really. Um, Amazon have completely transformed the um, the kind of process of self-publishing, and they've made. Um, let's let's face it. Without not, not not just Amazon, but without the Kindle taking off, then the self-publishing industry perhaps wouldn't be where it is today. So if that's your bag, then that's Amazon is you know it's fantastic. There is no there is no issue. Um, if you're a publisher who who kind of feels like the there's a battle against um, price. Um, what's the what fixing isn't the right word? Oh, is it the right word? I can't quite remember. Is that the term that everyone uses? Crikey, I'm feeling a bit drowsy. Um, but, but it's very squeezing difficult. It. Yeah, it's very yeah, difficult to compete with Amazon. They they they're not they're, the entire business. So when they sell lawnmowers and pencil sharpeners, the whole business famously doesn't really make much of a profit at all. Amazon, despite being worth billions of pounds, um, and and so they they just bring all the prices down, and, and publishers find it very difficult to compete, and particularly actual real bookshops find it very difficult to compete so there's that element to it um and as an author of course and as a kind of long-time reader the fact that pub bookshops and, and and independent bookshops particularly are closing down left right and center is a very sad thing and um and i don't like that at all so i do want to support my local bookshop i, w- I want to support my not so local bookshops you know waterstones is the biggest branch in the uk and it has its faults and i wish that it stocked more copies of my book but you know at least it exists so um, um i want to support those people too but and there is a bit of a but here because um i am uh, i think what they call a mid-list author perhaps someone who doesn't sell an awful lot but has sold you know a, 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 an amount <laughs> a reasonable amount an amount I'm, I'm happy with you know and it's you know Amazon has been the place where I've sold most of my books. Um, you know, we're talking, Absolutely. we're talking, you know, thousands, and it's through it's through Amazon. And um, and th- th- when the book was launched, Amazon chose my book as part of their summer of reading two ninety nine deal, two ninety nine or less. All the you know selection of hundred books. Mine was one of the many books that was at ninety nine p, and this was on my launch month. And so I sold loads of books then that I wouldn't have sold um, necessarily without Amazon's mechanics and system and just the way it does things, the fact that it was able to do that. So, that said, it's not like I'm a book-related millionaire or anything, is it? So, whilst that's a good thing, it hasn't made a great great deal of difference to my life in practice, Um, so as an author, it's very difficult to... I think there are so many different angles and there are so many different types of author. I think um, your opinion on Amazon is kind of a bit all over the place. Um, but yeah, in, in other professions, and especially if you work for Hachette, where they are now laying people off, because the, I think the element of this story that you didn't include was Amazon, in this in this kind of dispute with Hachette, 
Amazon stopped selling. I think I think that's correct. Stopped selling mm-hmm. Swim Fashette's books. Yeah. So they literally it, just took them. It's total control of, of of the entire process. Yeah. yeah I mean, is- I think in the past I've said you know bookshops. I I didn't like the way that bookshops were being squeezed out by Amazon. When it actually you realise it's everybody is. I'm very happy that bigger publishers are starting to make noise about this because I mean our publishers. I, don't, I, I mean, you know, I, I doubt smaller publishers could ever have, have done anything about it, and it's, that's quite scary. But on the grand scheme of things, though, and this is really horrible, harsh thing to say, isn't this just capitalism? Well, I think it is. It's just one of those things. I think people have to get, get used to it. Like, it's really, it's really quite rubbish that there are... I mean, I think people complain about bookshops disappearing, but I, having... Being a person who has lost my job through no fault of my own because of you know redundancies and just changing economics and all that kind of thing within a business, it's not just the fact oh we can't buy our books from bookshops anymore. It's these are real people who have made a living. Some of these people, some of these booksellers, will have been booksellers for ten, twenty, thirty plus years, and it's it's not just an industry that's changing. It's lots of people, individuals who are hugely affected by the way things are changing. However. I do think you're right. It's just, unfortunately, it's... Well, no, maybe not even unfortunately. I don't know. I, I, I don't have all the answers. But no, because it, we're, we, it's the demand. It's, it's, we are the reason that Amazon is squeezing you know, everybody in the publishing industry. It's not Amazon. <laughs> I mean, ultimately, it's, it's every time you make that decision not to, uh, not to take a walk down the road to go and get something, and that's what everybody's doing. And I think I kind of well, think needs must, and, you know things will be forced to change now and it doesn't necessarily mean that that it's like no bookshops or no bookshops and publishers or no publishers because Amazon is so ginormous. I mean, this is all a balancing act that Amazon can't survive without books being published or well, maybe it could actually because it sells so many other things, who knows. I just think that I, I'm optimistic that, that, you know, there will be a new landscape and it's not all going to be bereft of books. I'm sure it won't be. It'll just be a different type of. It'll just be a different landscape. But I mean, you say that you you say there that it's it's about people wanting to not necessarily have to walk down the road to get a book. Oh, I can just get a book. But that's that's a, the the truth. That is. But <laughs> Waterstones have their own online bookstore. Foils have their own online bookstore. Lots and lots and lots of other places are available for you to buy books from. It's just that Amazon have the entire ecosystem and they have the Kindle particularly and um, and they have things like Amazon Prime where you literally order at one o'clock in the afternoon and it appears on your doorstep the following day. And that is an, it's an amazing service. I used, I'm an Amazon Prime member myself and it's got me out of a number of other people's birthday-related scrapes. Birthday-related jams. That's, yeah, absolutely. I know it. And well, I mean, for the first time today, I, I ordered a book over uh, a bookshop's uh, online shop instead of Amazon. And how was the, so ex- like, how was the experience compared to, for example, Amazon's one-click feature where you go, you're on the book page and you click it and it appears the next day. One-click, absolutely just as easy as could be. How did the experience buying books on... Uh, uh, was it, did you say a publisher's website? Or, or no, like it a- was... It was a bookshop. How was it? I, I, I decided to go around it a different way. The, the person, this is another birthday-related um, example. The person um, that I wanted to buy for lived in Newcastle in the north of England. So I thought, well, I'll just see what bookshops are up there um, in terms of local chains and stuff like that. And then I found, uh, looked through some different bookshops, found one that had an online 
shop. It was a chain. It's it's a big one. It could be throughout the UK, but I thought, well, that's better than nothing. And then, and then I just did it. But I thought, you know, I mean, I know small bookshops are struggling just to, you know, keep the doors open. But um, but in my experience, I haven't seen many that have online options. Have you? Well, I'm talking the- like small independent bookshops. Yeah, no, I think most. Well, no, that's true. That's true. Uh, I, I suppose like your average kind of local independent bookstop, book, bookshop, because the mechanism of getting that kind of data onto the website is probably going to be quite complex for someone who is probably spending most of their time on their own in a bookshop themselves, selling to actual customers. It's quite. A, I imagine that kind of the constant need to put new books on would be impossible not to mention distribution and all those kinds of things so yeah no they don't but places like waterstones definitely do i believe foils has got uh, you can buy stuff from them and a lot of the publishers themselves you can buy direct from i know that you can buy um, um books direct from legend press my publisher that you can go and buy them skip all the other kind of middlemen and just go straight to legend and buy a book Absolutely, so, and you can from New Island as well. Yeah, I, I just—I should just say that <laughs> as well, shouldn't I? Um, but still, I think you know, you kind of think bookshops, small bookshops. That's something which maybe they have to face. Do they have somebody that comes in part time to do things in the bookshop, or do they pay somebody to to do co- digital stuff for them all the time? You know. I don't know, but I think that it, it, even the fact that the way that we're even talking about this shows what a losing battle it is. <laughs> I think oh. the, no, no one's um, no one's <laughs> going to do that and, and win unless they're really innovative. And I think that's the key word, perhaps. Yeah. And I've said this for a couple of years. People. Publishers, especially, and, and authors and. Um, publicity people pr people marketing people in 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 publishers just think differently and innovate and 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 just sort of accept what you have and what the situation is and look for ways to make the most of it um i think that's probably the the way forward it's not to kind of get stuck longing for the past but to um um, venture forward and do what you can but I should, I should say absolutely that Amazon removing Hachette's books from their shop was fairly heinous. Yes, absolutely. Really, and th- but there's there's other things that have happened. I read that, for example, um, George Orwell's 1984 um, paid copies were deleted from users' Kindles in in different types of disputes. I mean, there's like there are a lot of bad things going on. <laughs> yeah, let's. Yeah, they're not. They're not. Um, the uh, most kind of pleasant ethical company in the entire world, I suspect. Um, but you know, but we shall keep our eyes. Um, well, keep keep watching and with interest. Mm. It's not. It's not. Uh, it's not something I know an awful lot of detail about. You may have just noticed in the last ten minutes. <laughs> it's more of a more of a feel for the situation that I have. <laughs> yeah, I, have I mean, lot- it's funny that we're both authors that have books on Amazon and. It's for me. It's just like that's that's not my side of things. I don't worry about it. You know, I whatever. Que sera, sera with Amazon on my book. But the, I, th- I think that you're saying that because you're aware of um, the fact that you're is a is a poetry collection, which perhaps isn't. Um, for example, you you haven't got a Kindle version of it because it's I th- I think quite difficult to format poetry on Kindle. And well, I, apparently I've got one coming. I just checked on Amazon and it's it's all set up ready. You just can't buy it yet. You can't trust what they say. I know. <laughs> Who knows? Oh. Um, anyway. So, yeah. Anyway. 
Um, I was uh, so. The, I just wanted to quickly talk about um, um, something that we've talked about before, actually, but it's becoming more and more <laughs> prescient because um, a girl is a half-formed thing by Amy McBride. Emer. Oh, yes. Emer. Is that how you pronounce it? I apologise. It is. Yeah. So, uh, Emer McBride is um, has just won the. Bailey's uh, Prize for Fiction, which was previously the Orange Prize, and um, is one of the, I don't know, top three, ones. maybe, top four, yeah. certainly top five um, most important literary awards in the UK. And so this is the book that I've talked about in the last month. It's the book I'm still reading. The reason I still have it's a very short book. I just haven't been able to do much reading because of my wife being poorly and work and all those kinds of things. It's one of the things that's had to go, unfortunately. But um, I've read enough to know that it's brilliant and uh, it's very challenging. So the context with which I was talking, in which I was talking about this before was someone, uh, I think it was a listener's question, had asked whether um, experimental fiction could be successful or something along those lines. And I'd said, well, this book seems to be getting nominated for things and I'm reading it and it's really quite good. Um, but winning the Bailey's Prize is something... It's a little different. It's kind of um, it's kind of um, impressive, and everyone is standing up and taking notice to the point where I've seen a number of people um, talk about this book, which is, of course, it's now getting reviewed more widely. And the story behind the book, so this is to give hope to everyone listening. I think the story behind this book is that Emma McBride wrote it nine years ago, and it's uh, um, um, and. Uh, got turned down by every publisher going um, until she ended up with it in front of, I think, a bookseller, a bookshop in um, Norwich and who happened to pass it on to um, a chap called Sam Jordison who has done some work for The Guardian, used to, you know, writes for The Guardian and set up his own publisher called Gallybagger Press, small independent publisher, uh, only started it two years ago. Um, interesting way of doing things, some really good stuff, really good books, and this was one of them. And um, and it's gone on and got reviewed in the Times Literary Supplement and got another couple of reviews, and it's just kind of snowballed and people have, are now talking about it um, as if it's... Um, what's the word? Kind of... Uh, legendary like this is like, like this book is going to be sp- spoken of for decades to come it is it's kind of that unique and that good that's how it's being that's how it's being talked about um yeah um, i saw i saw one writer uh, say that it was you know it, it has won the bailey's prize but it's actually the best book to have won a, a major literary prize in probably the last decade they I, were saying. I mean that's the kind of scale yeah and i think that the person who said that was that the post by dan holloway Oh, it is. I've read it now. Quite possibly. So Dan Holloway, Dan Holloway, yes. who I have met in person, um, he's a real advocate. Name <laughs> dropper. <laughs> Not at all. Although he will, he will like that if he listens. Well, I've uh, met Michael Palin uh, in, and the Prime Minister of Denmark. We know. Um, <laughs> you didn't know about Michael Palin. I didn't talk about the Prime Minister. Anyway, carry on about Dan. <laughs> so Dan is a huge advocate for self-publishing. He self-publishes his own stuff and. Um, he's uh, he says here this is quite possibly the best book to win a major literary prize in a decade or more it will inevitably mean other publishers raise their eyebrows and, and have a little hmm let's have a think about that at the moment let's have a think about that moment mm-hmm. so um, and the, the context of this article which will be in the show notes where do you find the show notes Donna? Um, at 
Hang on a minute. No, because I, no, I can't remember which number we are. You always do this to me. And yet... Uh, ask me in a minute. Talk about why they're going to be in the show notes about the article, and I'll tell everybody. So, so this article by Dan uh, Holloway is, is basically saying um, that it's changed the self-publishing debate. Um, now, this book wasn't self-published, but it was, as I've just described, by a very, very small press. And, um, and it's been transformed into this kind of, like, like I say, work of kind of literary genius. Um, and... And uh, it is interesting, and it, it, his point is that this book was turned down by so many people. And I think the reason it's turned down is because it's quite um, um, challenging to read. So this is what I've talked about. So it's it's kind of the sentences aren't they're not r- sentences that you initially recognise, but but once you start reading, you you get it. You don't need they don't the words don't need to be in an order that you would normally find familiar. And I know that's quite a difficult thing to say and understand because it's. Uh, Unless you've read it, but uh, in fact, I will read a little bit later on because we're going to talk about openings to um, to uh, to Ooh, books. Goody, because I haven't read it yet, so I, I'm interested. Yeah, well, you'll see what I mean immediately. Yeah. Um, but you know, it was turned down, and you can imagine why lots of people would turn this down. You'd read it and go, "Well, that's not going to sell, <laughs> so I'm not going to bother," um, and because that's how it works. Um, but look, it's a brilliant book and it's now won a prize and it's now being considered like this you know fantastic work so maybe publishers should start thinking about things a little differently and maybe some people are uh, writing fiction that isn't as mainstream as you might imagine and i include myself in that i think um then maybe we should um carry on and and have hope and and uh, and know that the real good stuff can float to the top Absolutely. And and it's absolutely awesome that Galley Breger Press took this on when other people hadn't and things like that. But Faber did take it on, ultimately, and were really excited about it. And they're massive. Don't you think that that's, that says something about a big publisher like Faber? That was before it was winning prizes. Well, I can't quite remember the timeline. So what happened was Galley Breger Press published it, and the review in the Times Literary Supplement was definitely while it was published by... Um, Gallybagger, I yeah. think that it was also nominated for, I think it's the Goldsmiths Award, a Goldsmiths Prize. I think it was at least nominated for that before Faber got involved. But yes, you are right. So Faber, a much bigger publisher, uh, basically got to a point and said, look, this is, we want to take this on. And obviously they have the, uh, <laughs> like Amazon, they have the mechanics to do more with it and get it distributed properly and into Wardstones all over the country and all that kind of thing. So yes, there is yeah, there is an element of that, but uh, I think that it was well on its way to uh, notoriety before um, before that happened. Absolutely. And I remember reading um something last well this week um about it which sounded quite like not dramatic, but the fact that you know once once it's it won the Baileys and also it won the Irish Book Award as well. That's um, right. Um and, you know, was taken on by Faber like this, then uh, somebody, I can't remember the exact words, but they said something like was about to get the full um, proper mainstream publicity treatment, you know, with a lot of money thrown at it. And, um, and you know, obviously I've seen it. I've seen, you start to see it everywhere then. It's amazing, you know, what a, what a bit of money can do. Well, we've Absolutely also amazing. We've also talked before about um, Nathan Nathan Filer, who's uh, been on the podcast before. His book, The Shock of the Fall, won the Costa Prize. Mm-hmm. I think widely regarded as kind of the second biggest literary prize in the UK, and um, and uh, he did have you know he had a lot of uh, he's published with Ooh, Hodder, I think, and Stone. 
I think that's right. And uh, so big publisher, and obviously it had a lot of good backing anyway. But mm. you know, as soon as it won that prize, um, I was, I know that Nathan's tweeted that it's sold over a hundred thousand copies, and I go into uh, Waterstones in Sheffield, and it is right there, still at the top of the charts. Mm-hmm. I mean, again, it's a great book, which helps. I don't think it's. I don't, this is, you know, when, let's be honest. It's a. If it's a good book, then I'm glad it's sold lots of copies, and you know, that's a, that's great. But it, you know, it doesn't always happen, and um, and you're right. As soon as the marketing machine decides that one book is going to be successful, mm-hmm. um, it it can kind of make it happen to a degree. I hope yeah. that doesn't sound a bit kind of churlish because it's not meant that way. No, no, it's true. Um, it's, Oh, yeah, fantastic story about how this book came to be and, you know, about perseverance as well as an author, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And it's, uh, like I say, I'm, I've, I haven't finished it yet, but I'm, there, were, there were about there's about 20 pages or so, I think it's around page 40 to 60, where before that, bearing in mind that I'm reading this when I'm quite tired and when there's a lot going on, um, but there was... I got to so I was I was going through thinking this is yeah this is good I get this this is challenging which I think I said on the podcast then I got mm-hmm. to a point where I was just hooked for about 20 pages and it was I thought it was breathtaking it was just absolutely breathtaking sort of mm-hmm. writing and this, these sentences shouldn't work I know again I will read a bit in a minute and you'll understand what I mean it shouldn't work you kind of think you have to read them twice sometimes although I, although I do think once you get going you do just get into a rhythm but it's um um yeah it just it just works after after uh, not very long at all once you're in that rhythm and like i say there's a there's just a period where i was like blimey this is good fantastic and i've just uh, sorted all my crap out so i can actually talk about the show notes quickly now so that people can actually have a look at this right now if they'd like to before they carry on listening or while listening to the rest of the podcast um it's five by five dot tv slash w f y l slash one one four. Excellent. Great. So that leads us on, doesn't it, very nicely to openings, which it we does. wanted to discuss this week. I did want to discuss this, 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 this week. We're not talking about bodily openings or did... job openings. This is true. This is true. I didn't think for a second that we were, and I'm not sure anyone else did. But uh, can we... openings? Come on, if you hear the word openings. The openings of books is not necessarily the first thing that comes into your head, even if you are listening to um, a writing-related podcast. So you honestly think that there's a chance that everyone listening to this, hello everyone, that uh, that having just heard us discuss <laughs> fiction, um, Amazon, book prizes, you know everything that you can think of to do with literature, you, and then and then we mentioned the word openings that they would initially think of mouths, ears, <laughs> and bumholes. If they are anything like me. (laughs) And you never know because, you know, a lot of people listening to this podcast are creative types. And they think about things a little bit differently, Ian. So there you go. Right? Let's just leave it at that. Okay. I can't get the image out of my head at all now, but let's push on anyway with openings of of books. So I just thought it would be an interesting topic. I don't think we've covered it before. Um, And it's about openings to books and, and how how important they are and how much emphasis we should place on them as writers and i guess whether we um we get carried away with them and whether we think that it's um it's something that perhaps we didn't ought to fuss about quite as much as we um often do so 
Um, to aid us in this task, uh, we have an article in The Telegraph, which is titled 30 Great Opening Lines in Literature. You can find that in the show notes as well. Um, and so I might refer to a couple of those. I've also got um, uh, Ema McBride's book, which I'm going to read the first couple of lines of that uh, in a second. Um, but yeah, it was just generally to talk about openings because it's it's a, a classic um, piece of advice. So if we start with this, it's a classic piece of advice, I think from Ray Bradbury, but I might be wrong, that if you take a short story, and I guess a novel, maybe even a poem, but if you take a short story and you think you've finished, delete the first page and delete the last page and you will have a better piece of work. That's the That's the kind of obviously very generalistic and and sort of slightly flippant um, piece of advice but it is the idea that actually um, people think that they've started in the right place but often haven't or possibly overthink the opening and it it makes it something separate to the actual flow of the story yes and so there are people that write the last the last page before they write the rest of it yeah, there are, and 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 it's every writer is different. So I know that I pretty much had the same opening for the entire seven, eight, nine years. It was that that it was that took me to to write the book. But um, I was uh, the other reason I wanted to talk about this was because I heard someone on I've for, completely forgotten their name, and I apologise, but I'll put a link to it in the show notes. But an episode of Tea and Jeopardy, which is another podcast about writing, and it was an agent. And Emma Newman, the host of uh, Tea and Jeopardy, asked this uh, literary agent, whose name I can't remember, um, uh, what one piece of advice would you give to writers? And uh, she said, start your story in the right place. Mm. And that's what got me thinking. That's great. Yeah, good advice. Um, Before we come with our good and bad examples and also our our own experience, can I just um, interject with something related to this um and also maybe if our listeners um know what i'm talking about here then that would be fantastic but i would like to find out if anybody listening ever played a board game called ex libris have you ever heard of it ian no you're on your own (laughs) i'm totally on my own when many many years ago when i was a kid i had a friend her family had this board game called ex libris so i played it a few times at their house and then never saw it ever i could never buy it i could never get it and i was devastated because it's the most amazing concept it was just a load of cards which had the first line of big books of uh, of literature really important stories the opening line and the closing lines And what you had to do was people had to write their own opening or closing line for a book. So if we say we took The Hobbit, then everybody would write their own opening line and it would be put in there with the real opening line. And then somebody would read them out and you had to guess which was the real one. And if yours was guessed, you'd get points. And if you guessed the real one, you get points. That simple. It was fantastic. Can you imagine? That would just be so fantastic to play that now, wouldn't it? Uh, Right now. No, I just mean in general, in life. Like, I mean, first of all, we've, we've read way more books, so you know a lot of amazing opening lines, like some of the ones we'll talk about are very, very famous. But just, it was so cool to see everybody's writing styles when they were writing. After a few rounds, you could pick out, you know, that's written by that person and that's written by that person. Um, but anyway, if anyone listening has ever played this game or knows where you can get it, I would love to know because I would buy that right now unless it was on Amazon. <laughs> I've not, I've not heard of it, but it does sound like uh, good fun. It's fantastic. And, yeah, so it gets you thinking a lot about openings as well because obviously some opening lines 
you just pass them by without noticing them but some of them stay with you they really do it's true it's true they do and and, and it is important so let's i guess before we have some examples let, let's try and answer the question is it is there too much importance placed on the opening of any kind of story but let's say novels because i think that's probably the most common um example but but short fiction is very i think is actually very much uh, this all applies to short fiction too is too much importance placed on the opening what do you think i think that it is obviously massively important but that if somebody's committed to buying a book which most people have if they're sitting reading a book i should imagine or have swapped it for something else you never know then they are going to at least get past the first few lines and they're going to carry on a couple of pages before they give up entirely so i don't think it's i don't think it's necessarily the first line i think it's the first page is massively important and um i i have an example of 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 a book where i just the first chapter i just couldn't get past it because i gave it i kept going i kept going it was ian McEwan's enduring love which you know every everybody's read that book but in the first chapter there was like a four page description of a picnic and i just i completely lost interest but i gave it i gave it a good go so i think that it's it's important but we've got i think you've got more to play with than the first line i think that's a f- absolutely fascinating example that you've chosen because it, everybody loves it and everybody thinks it's fantastic the way he sets up what happens the the opening chapter to enduring in love is one of the i th- i think anyway one of the kind of most recognized um, opening chapters um, in literature is well, it must be, be one of the most recognised picnics. Nothing <laughs> <laughs> um, happens in the first bit. Well, the, the first chapter is quite long. I think that's the that's partly part of the problem. But this, I think, this ties perfectly in with what we're doing, what we're talking about. Because oh, good, because I brought it up, so I'm, I'm glad it does. Because you know, <laughs> otherwise, <laughs> what am I doing here? You just, but you just said that it. Um, you just said that you have more than the first line. Yes. But, but it doesn't sound that you have much more than the first line because I think if you'd have read the entire first chapter it, it gets to a point where you go where it's it's just so unbelievably tense and it's, it's you know it's really very good I agree there is a four pages worth of picnic but um, but um, it's worth it it's worth the investment it's worth the time but actually some readers and this is the point is there too much importance placed on the opening there probably isn't. It does need to be from the first line. It does need to be the first page. It does need to be the first, you know, right at the start. You need to to have impact, and maybe you are taking a risk if you if if you put four pages of picnic in the first uh, in the <laughs> first part, because you know it's look at the impression it's left on you. I know, and I've read loads of Ian McEwan, but that I just I mean going back to that, I I think I will probably one day, and I'll be more in the mood, but. Uh, that yeah you know it just didn't it didn't get me that time but I think what's important here is that you you don't need to aim for an opening line that will stand alone entirely on its own don't you think that that's that's important thing that you know I mean there are some first lines that stand absolutely alone and that you read them and you're just like wow but it's not important because some of the best best openings to books you know you wouldn't be able to tell which story it was from no, that's that's true, but um, I, it's true. But but you're contradicting yourself slightly with the Ian McEwan example. I mean, it's it's. It, I think it's. I think you you don't need to have a first line that can stand alone as like a work of art in itself. But that first paragraph really does need to have some sort of impact. It really does. Oh, need absolutely. To. I just mean that the first sentence. 
like this is what I what I was meaning like yeah. you know it's I wonder whether people writers sit down and they think okay I've got this first sentence this has to just be like bam I do think like that honestly I do and I've been thinking about it to the point where it's actually um it's um held me up significantly with this uh, when I'm when I'm been writing the set I've, I've kind of moved on now but when I first started sat down to write the second novel I had in my head that I just wanted this line I'd had this line which I thought at the time was brilliant I now think it perhaps is less so because it doesn't actually make any sort of grammatical sense but I ah, had but does that matter now we know oh. well you tell me you tell me whether you think this is wrong or right but I I, I had this line I wanted to start with um this morning I witnessed a starling because I liked the rhythm of it. Now, it's not the most... I mean, there's, it goes on, there is other stuff, but the first sentence, <laughs> with a full stop, I just liked the, I liked the rhythm of this morning I witnessed a starling, the sizz and the stuh-stuh-stuh-stuh of it. Sorry, that shouldn't do that into a microphone, really. But, you know, I liked, the, I liked the rhythm of it. And someone pointed out to me that in order to witness some, something, there needs to be... The object needs to be doing something... <laughs> So I need to witness the starling doing something in order to witness, because like you witness an event, you see something, you can observe something, but you witness an event. You can't just witness an object, if that makes sense. What about witnessing the fact that the starling is there and it exists? I, I know, but I think this is this is what I tried to argue, but I was com- I was eventually convinced that I was wrong. Um, however, uh, so I, I really focused on this first sentence, and I put I did put when I was writing it. So this is. This is kind of the point I want to make about whether it's uh, about the importance of the opening. When you're writing, and I think that you've suggested this as well, when you're actually writing, don't worry about it to start off with. Don't worry about it even when you're halfway through your project. Only really worry about it when you're in the editing process and you need to try and make sure that it has some impact. Tighten Um, it up. Yeah, don't spend weeks on trying to get some kind of grammatically incorrect sentence to work or to try and persuade someone else that it's going to work just carry on writing just do the rest of it um mm. but do make in my opinion do make sure that it is right do make sure that opening paragraph the opening page has impact because you do need to catch a reader's attention and before that before you have a book that's on the shelves you need to catch an agent's and the publisher's attention, they're the most important people to impress because they have hundreds of manuscripts. And, and you know, maybe Ian McCune was lucky with the four pages of Picnic because he'd already had other published novels. Maybe they would have, maybe his, uh, maybe if it was his first novel, prospective agents and publishers would have been put off with those four pages of Picnic. But, yeah. but you know, for most of us, um, that's not going to work. You do need to have some impact, I think. Absolutely. Um, I can talk briefly about my own experience in this. A few years back, I wrote the first five chapters of a, it's not really a young adult novel. It was for slightly younger children. I I was not really ever sure where I was going to hit it. That's why I think it it turned out to be quite complicated and I didn't write more than that. But but I took the the first bit I'd written along to um, a workshop, writing workshop for writing for young adults. And it was run by, um, at the time, the Children's Laureate of Ireland called Siobhan Parkinson, who wrote young adult novels. Um, and she also ran a publishing company. So I was like, oh, that's amazing. <clears throat> Took it along. And I, um, in the group, I read out uh, the prologue that I'd written. It was a little prologue. And then the first chapter. Um, and it was fascinating, the response I got, because everybody was like, oh, the prologue is great. That's absolutely fantastic. But just, I mean, you know, the first chapter is just, just ditch it, basically start again. 
And I realized that I'd focused so intently on that prologue and that I had put all of my energy into that, that I'd, I must have just kind of let go after that and not really been as, as tight and as questioning about what I was writing as I had been because I'd been so intent on getting the opening, you know, to have the most impact. And I've, I, I don't know, I just felt so, oh, God, really, do I have to go back and write that? So I haven't gone back and done it, but I should do, and I would like to. And thinking about openings here this week has made me want to go back and, and redo the first chapter. Well, that's good to hear. Yes, absolutely. So I think it can be the other way as well. Presumably, like, if you really are focused on that start, that, that it actually, you know, it can work, but then, you know, you, you lose it. I think that most writers do have focus, especially first-time um, writers or first-time novelists. You do focus on the start because it's usually it's usually where you start with the writing because you've had some sort of idea, and it's not like you have like a, a history of writing books so that you think, well, you know, I know what I, I need to plan ahead and I need to think about what will happen in fifty or hundred pages time. You just have an idea and you start writing, and then usually you start at the start. And and actually, the most difficult thing when you're writing any fiction, really, of any length, but um, I suppose even if you just write a short story, it's quite difficult as well, is consistency. It's very difficult to yeah. to write good chapter after good chapter after good chapter um, and and to have the same kind of exacting standards for, the, your, for your 500th sentence as you do for your first. Um, and something that I've talked about before on the podcast, and I've definitely written about it, is is about making every word count. So how important it is to make every single word, every single syllable, count. Because people read all of your book; they don't just read the opening. If you unless it's unless there's too much picnic, they don't much. They don't just read the opening. You need to try and get some consistency. However, that initial impact is really important. Absolutely. So yeah. so perhaps. Perhaps the if there is any advice to come from this, perhaps it is to not necessarily think of your opening paragraph or your opening chapter as the start. If you unless unless you're right at the point where you have a full manuscript and you need to decide what the start is, if you're just at the start of the entire writing process, don't think well this is going to be the start of the book. Just think well here is another paragraph I need to make really good, and then yeah. hopefully you will. If you take that attitude into every paragraph, then uh, hopefully you'll have a generally good book. Absolutely. I think in terms of the writing, what's interesting, though, is what, what you mentioned before about the um, the agent who'd said, make sure you're starting in the right place. So I think it's also good to think, OK, I could I could potentially write this in a different way if I needed to, but that you are at, still at the right place in terms of the plot, if you get what I mean. Yeah. Yeah. So we could, should we do some examples? Yes. Yes, it's funny that the um, the list that you mentioned, which will be in the show notes, I'm sure, of the 30 uh, best opening lines, according to The Telegraph, um, I thought it was quite interesting because one of them um, was actually one of my worst openings. Oh, really? Which one? Uh, Tale of Two Cities by oh, okay. Dickens. Yeah. Um, and listeners may know um, the opening to Tale of Two Cities, but the first sentence is nine lines long in, in the version I have. Um and I guess actually I can see why it's in this list because it's certainly memorable. But it's just it's. Do you remember? Do you, have you read Tale of Two Cities? No, the only Dickens that were that I've read like, as in the entire book was Dombeyanson. Oh, I know. <laughs> well, there you go. That's an unusual one to have read. Um, 
I do, do you like the sound of the book? Because this is an actual book in front of me. I think that's quite nice. I'm flicking through a book. Oh, well, I've got a book myself here. All right, okay. It's not, you know, one-upmanship. No, I was just, <laughs> I was just saying. No, I do. I like the sound of your book as well. Um, yes, I don't, I, I don't think I'm even going to read the whole thing, but it's the one that says, it was the best of times, it was the worst of times, it was the age of wisdom, it was the age of foolishness, it was the epoch of belief, it was the epoch of incredulity, it was the season of light, it was the season of darkness, it was the spring of hope, it was the winter of despair, we had everything before us, we had nothing before us, we were all going to heaven, we were all going directly the other way, in short, the period was so far like the present period that some of its noisiest authorities insisted on its being received for good or for evil in the superlative degree of comparison only snappy full stop <laughs> we, can, we can't really diss it but it's a particularly popular book I suspect why it's, can't we diss that first uh, oh yeah first we can sentence. you're right we can diss it I hate it <laughs> did you hate it or did you not hate it I don't think it, I, it's not for me it's not my kind of thing it doesn't really say a great deal you might as well have just said it was this that and the other yeah it was yeah, <laughs> or, or yeah, it was it was basically a, a very, um, what do you call it? Oh, you see, I can't, I'm completely phased by it now, but yeah, it's not for me. <laughs> <laughs> well, here I've, I've, I said I was going to read it, so I really ought, um, to, uh, Ema McBride's, but you'll see. You, I'm, well, that, I'm, that was a worst example. This now is, is, a, is a fabulous example. Is that what we're saying? Well, Ooh. it's, yeah, it is. It's a fantastic example, but I mean, part of the reason that this has such impact is because within the first four lines you go this book is different it's unusual it has yeah. impact now as we've <laughs> as we've discussed in this episode of this podcast um this opening paragraph and the rest of the opening page is what most publishers turn down however it's since gone on to be a prize-winning book so make of all this what you will but you'll see that it's uh, at the very least it's unique um so chapter one for you, you'll soon, you'll give her name in the stitches of her... S- <laughs> For you, you'll soon, you'll give her name. In the stitches of her skin, she'll wear your say. Mammy me? Yes, you. Bounce the bed, I'd say. I'd say that's what you did. Then lay you down. They cut you round. Wait an hour and day. It's pretty unusual, isn't it? It is unusual, and um, I would just like to supplement that by... Um, saying that I read that while she was writing this book, or even as inspiration before she started, above her desk she had um, a quote from James Joyce um, taped up, which said, one great part of every human existence is passed in a state which cannot be rendered sensible by the use of wide-awake language, cut-and-dry grammar, and go-ahead plot. So that was her inspiration for, for well, when she started to write that. Interesting. I've got a picture of uh, Jan Mulby above my... <laughs> Who is that? Yeah, Mulby. That was a. I think there will be at least three people listening who will understand that reference. Yeah, Mulby was a football player in the late eighties and early nineties for Liverpool. I liked him. He was my favourite footballer because, unlike all the other footballers, he was quite portly. You know, he's quite a. He was as as footballers were allowed to be back then. So he was quite a big chap, but he would. He had the touch and the grace of um, of a fine artist on the football field. Uh, but still, why on earth do you have a picture of this large fellow? Well, I don't. My point was that I, I, I don't have any quotes above my... It's more about heroes, like I think about oh, heroes. Oh, so I you have him, you have him, you really do have him up there as a hero? No, I don't have him here. This is, this is <laughs> oh, all... God, Ian! We, we, oh, we've, OK, fine. We've made more of this than I expected to. 
sorry. Sorry. Anyway, um, yeah, that's that's a fascinating opening. And apparently it's, is it the, something to do with ins- listening from inside the womb, I read? Is that what it is? Yeah, it's the book. The book is um, it's about, uh, it's a first person about um, a, a girl whose brother has had has to have like a brain tumour or brain, it's not quite clear, but a sort of brain operation when he was young. And then it's just about her growing up. I haven't finished it, so it's quite difficult to me for me to be specific. But yeah. Um, but yeah, but that that bit is is a baby listening out from the womb. Um, I think so. But now that I'm saying I think so, I'm starting to question it. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm not, when, I'm you not that, when you, I mean, now that you know, it's difficult to say because you you know all the fuss that's happened about this book. But when you read that first sentence, what did what was your initial and immediate reaction? I thought, goodness me, I'm tired. I'm not going to get through this. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, no, I didn't. I thought that uh, I straight away. I thought it jolts you, uh, and and it goes on. I mean, that's how it is for the entire book. If if not more complicated or more difficult to kind of restructure in your head, um, it, it, I, I, it had impact. I just thought, wow, this is different. I've not. I thought I've not read anything like this before. And in my opinion, that can only be a good thing. Yeah, fantastic. Uh, my favourite um, opening from this Telegraph article: thirty great opening lines in literature wasn't Dickens, it was the quote from Beckett, um, a book of his which I haven't read and know very little about, called Murphy. I hadn't heard this quote before. And it's very short, which is, I think, a good thing for an opening to a book, unlike the one you just read. It says simply this, the sun shone having no alternative on the nothing new. Yeah, I like that. Simple. I like the nothing new. Shone but on the this, nothing new. This is fascinating because like we know nothing i i you know i mean obviously we know beckett and we know his big works i would be lying if i said i knew murphy but that first line has made it into a list of you know best openings so people will go out and buy it so in this case even though you can't tell that line is from beckett or from that book you didn't know it it's still vitally important that it had that impact i didn't know this one either the the stranger by albert camus camus can't remember how you pronounce that Mother died today, or maybe yesterday. I can't be sure. Yeah. I like that. Yeah, there's some absolutely fantastic ones in there. Um, I was interested to see that um, Love in the Time of Cholera made it in there, but for me, 100 Years of Solitude, the opening to that is is one of my all-time favourites. Have you read 100 Years of Solitude? No. That's going to flip my book, my second real book of the night. Um... It starts many years later as he faced the firing squad. Colonel Aureliano Buendia was to remember that distant afternoon when his father took him to discover ice. Doesn't say much, but, you know. It doesn't need to, though. I think that's the point, isn't it? I, I think that... So my approach to this, and I'm not in any way, shape or form, suggesting that I've written a great opening that should even be part of a discussion about great openings... However, my thought process when I was trying to write my opening was that short, simple, and just to try and see if I could in some way sum up the entire book in in, uh, in, in kind of what is three lines. Absolutely, at least by the feel of it. Yeah, just so yeah. set the tone, just set the tone immediately, yeah. just sort of, you know, a bit like you were saying earlier, don't sort of have this amazing opening and then it just go off in a completely different direction so that it bears no resemblance. It's about setting the tone of the piece, I think. Um, I like Lolita's, uh, the opening to Lolita. Yes. Oh, yes, that's a, that's a book I've read as well. And I imagined it being written in Russian and because mm. 
it, it works because he's talking about the sound Lolita and it would still work in Russian because I can imagine that a lot of opening lines might lose a little bit in their translation maybe. Well, we talked about translation either last week or the week before, or maybe even both. And, um, and you know, the person who's translated this, uh, Lolita, I don't know who the, uh, I don't know which version, whether there are multiple translations, but I mean, just, you know, forget the Russian. This is beautiful. Lolita, light of my life, fire of my loins, my sin, my soul, Lolita, the tip of the tongue taking a trip of three steps down the palate to tap at three on the teeth, Lolita. Li Ta. Mm. That's good, yeah. isn't it? That is good. That's, you just, that's the same word you said earlier on that you asked me to bleep out. There's no way <laughs> I'm going to... Bleep out again. I want people to think I'm really, really foul mouthed. Um, yeah, no. That's fantastic. You know what? I think next week we should talk about closings. Endings? <laughs> I know I said it like that just to see whether you think about something else. Um... <laughs> um yeah, let's do that then. Great. Um, do you have anything else to add um, to openings and how one should and shouldn't go about doing it? Um, not really. That was my main tip was to kind of not worry too much about uh, about it at the start and just sort of crack on and then come back to it later and make sure it's good because it is quite important. Absolutely. Great. Well, Ian, guess what? We actually do have a listener's question. I know, we were very late asking the public for listeners' questions and therefore we didn't have any, but I spotted whilst we were actually recording this that my brother has sent one. <laughs> I know, and I think, you know, it is, it is quite funny because I, I, do, I can answer it very quickly. He's even what, did you, what did your brother ask? He followed, well, he followed the question with, if I ask the only question, does that mean it will be discussed in the eagerly awaited next podcast? Just the, the phrase, in the eagerly awaited, I mean, that... that there's so much going on in that, isn't there? <laughs> oh, yes. He's not, uh, basically you're saying he's not going to know whether we've talked about him or not. No, he's not going to listen to this. Um, no. This is, um, so this is a, a, a listener's question from Craig Broom, who you can find on Twitter at Jambo Boogie. Um, and he asks, does alcohol increase the creative juices? So it's actually, I think it's quite a good, it's not a good question. I wouldn't give him that, but it's a, it's a question and it's one that we can answer. Absolutely. Um, I can tell you that alcohol makes me play much, much better hockey than I um, normally can, or at least I think it does, because from inside my eyes looking out, it looks like I'm much better. Um, but it does not make me a better writer because it just kind of makes me... It, I, I lose my patience with writing. I don't have the concentration span when I'm drunk for it. I go way off on tangents and I can't sit down and write very much. No, it's not something that I do certainly anymore. But I did. There was a period when I was writing the novel in my twenties where I thought it was cool to drink. Uh, well, I've always drank. I, mean, I suppose I usually do have a beer or a glass of wine or something, but not uh, not excessive drinking. Um, and um, it, I wouldn't say it helped the incre- the creative juices, but it certainly um, made me feel more like a writer for a period, which is ridiculous and not actually true. But um, but there well, we I mean, you know. Uh, this is, opens up a whole, a whole podcast worth of discussion about about what, you know what writers have done to increase their creative uh, output and take them off in new directions. We could spend a lot of time on it, but I think for you and me, for me, I can say it doesn't. But I can try again for Craig. I will do more experiments on it. 
maybe we should just get absolutely plastered and try and write and then report back next week. Absolutely. And maybe we should see whether it in- increases our ability to record a podcast. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> right. Great. We're, Thank uh, you for this week, Ian. Yes, yeah, so for fifty-five minutes, we're um, uh, we're we're getting longer, like um, like a, a piece of string being woven, being stretched out by yeah. two elephants. Yes. Yes. Gosh, you can tell we're writers, can't you? <laughs> <laughs> Worst analogies ever. Hey. Uh, sorry. Well, mine was yours was. Sort of Mine was amazing. Mine's going to be the opening line of my next book. <laughs> <laughs> um, you can find me on Twitter at the Flying Poet. And I'm Ian Broom, I-A-I-N-B-R-W-M-E. And you can find um, all of the episodes of the Right for Your Life podcast at 5x5.tv slash W-F-Y-L. Please feel free to leave a positive, specifically, uh, review of the podcast in uh, iTunes. That would be uh, fantastic. We're very grateful for that. And um, until uh, next time, we shall uh, say farewell. Farewell and see you next time.